This episode of Fried Egg Stories is brought to you by Precision Pro Golf Rangefinders. I don't need to tell you that Father's Day is coming up, June 19th, but I do need to tell you that Precision Pro is having a Father's Day sale. Go to precisionprogolf.com and save up to $40 off their award-winning rangefinders. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. requires a different technique. What you need to do is actually square the face so it'll dig down underneath that bad lie and propel that ball right out onto the green. Here's the thing, playing out of a buried lie in a bunker is completely different than playing out of a nice, clean lie in a greenside bunker. You need to be aggressive on any shot, whether it's sitting cleanly or it's a uh, fried egg. Well, we've all faced it, the dreaded fried egg. Not to be feared, though, it's actually a pretty easy shot to hit. So, Robert Trent Jones was the most famous and prolific golf architect in the world from the 1950s until his death in the year 2000. His courses spanned the globe, and his ideas about design got so ingrained in golf culture that for decades they seemed like a kind of common sense. One of Jones's most powerful ideas was that tournament-hosting golf courses, especially U.S. Open golf courses, should fit a certain mold. They should be long, they should be heavily defended by rough and bunkers, and they should hardly ever give up scores under par. To meet these criteria, a course should be renovated by a professional golf architect, preferably by Robert Trent Jones himself. This argument was so persuasive to so many clubs that hosted U.S. Opens that Jones earned the nickname the Open Doctor. And as the Open Doctor, he set the standard in the post-World War II era for what a great golf course, a championship golf course, looked like. Today, those of us who are golfers occupy a world that Jones and Jones's influence created, though some of us have begun to feel that it's time for that world to give way to a new one. I'm Garrett Morrison, and this is Fried Egg Stories. Today, we kick off a three-part series called The Open Doctor and His Monster. Our goal is to give a portrait of the Robert Trent Jones era in golf, its origins, its breakthrough moment, and its recent fall from favor. In this episode, we tell the story of how Jones rose from a blue-collar background to the status of Open Doctor, and how, in the process, he came up with ideas that would dominate golf course design for many years. So to come to grips with how Robert Trent Jones changed golf, we have to consider where he came from and what motivated him. We can start in 1912, when he was six and his family emigrated from northern England to a working-class neighborhood in East Rochester, New York. Back then, he was known as Bob Jones. It was only later that he gave himself the middle name Trent. His father was a carpenter who built railroad cars. And by the time Bob was in sixth grade, he was on the lookout for a job of his own. So my dad uh, eventually was pulling the pigtails of somebody in his sixth grade class. That's the voice of Robert Trent Jones, Jr. And she said, if you'll stop pulling my pigtails, I'll introduce you to somebody who can give you an outdoor job and you'll have more fun. So here's the time. You go to the end of the railroad line, walk a mile, and go up to this place called Rochester Country Club and go into the pro shop and ask for my uncle, which he did. He came in hat in hand at 12 years old or whatever age he was. And he said, oh, 
are you the young man who's pulling the pigtails of my niece? And my father was said, he was frightened. He thought he was going to be chastised. He said, well, as long as you keep pulling her pigtails, I'll hire you as a caddy. And that was Walter Hagen. <laughs> so now he's in the game and he caddies. He's making small money, a dollar a round, which he gives to my grandmother to buy the groceries, as was done in those days. And he said, you know, I want to play it. So on Mondays, he could play golf, and they would play around, and then we'd have a caddy tournament. And the prize was a club, any club, and the caddy shop they chose, and he won that tournament. And I think he chose a two-iron, because he said he could drive with it and putt with it. Bob quickly became one of the best young golfers in the city. And he started to think that he could make a living as a pro, like Walter Hagen. But when he was 16, he got a stomach ulcer that would keep him out of competition for two years. And it was around this time that he became aware of Donald Ross, the golf architect. During Bob's childhood, Ross was very active in Rochester. He designed the new 18-hole course at the Country Club of Rochester, where Bob caddied. And on one of his return trips to the club, Ross did something that he likely forgot immediately, but that Bob Jones never did. Ross walked through the front door of the clubhouse. Bob saw this, and he knew what it meant. It meant that Ross, unlike Hagen, was not considered a servant. It meant that this course designer, this immigrant from Dornick, Scotland, had turned himself into something like a gentleman. And Bob began to think that being a golf architect might be a pretty good deal. Robert Trent Jones not only loved the idea of being a golf course designer, he loved the idea of the social elevation that it would come with it. That's James R. Hansen. Uh, I go by Jim, uh, so call me that. Uh, I am a retired professor of history at Auburn University in Auburn, Alabama. I taught there for 32 years. Jim is the author of the book A Difficult Par, Robert Trent Jones Sr. and the Making of Modern Golf. And so Jones has this ambition. He's, he's, remember, he, he's, it's an American dream story that he has, this boy that comes over from England at age six and sees the Statue of Liberty. Jones has this ambition to do something great, and he, he wants it to be in golf. But, you know, there's no pathway to becoming a golf course designer. He, all he can do is ask questions. And the first question Jones asks is maybe an obvious one. How exactly does a person become a golf architect? See, in this era, golf course design is barely a profession. It's really more of an informal group of famous players and wealthy gentlemen who happen to have the resources and connections to do it. But since Jones is neither famous nor wealthy, he's stuck. But then he gets lucky. His big break comes when he gets an offer to take a position managing a club up on Lake Ontario, Sotus Bay. He's like everything from the kitchen help through the superintending of the greens. He sort of does it all. And he does a little bit of, of redesign work or fixing up work on that course. One of the members there uh, is a guy that owns a vinegar factory in a nearby town. And he's a pretty wealthy guy. And he's a Hornell graduate. And Jones, through his association with this member at Sotus Bay, is talking to him and telling him what he would like to do. And, and the member says, well... I can probably get an, you an interview down with the Dean of Agriculture at Cornell, where I graduated, and maybe they can do something for you, even though you don't have a high school degree. So Jones grabs the opportunity and takes this invitation, and he meets with the Dean of Agriculture, ends up meeting with the Dean of Engineering as well. So they say, well, let's, we'll give you permission to enter 
Cornell, not as a regular student, but as a special student, and we'll allow you to take certain courses. As far as I'm aware, this is the first time in history that someone has used the educational system in this specific way, with the explicit intention to become a golf architect. Now, what do you think you would need to know if to design golf courses? You probably and, and so Jones and the deans had some conversation. Well, some ag, some agronomy, some horticulture, some civil engineering. You know, maybe some and and and, and how are you going to get your business? Well, you're going to have to meet meet with clients. So you maybe want some public speaking. You might want to take a marketing course. But he lays out this program of study that after two years. You know, it, it, there's no certificate that says now this man is prepared to be a golf course designer. Nothing like that. He has learned some things that now he can translate into a career if he can get a break to do that. And he does get a break. Just as Bob is finishing his studies at Cornell in 1929, he hears that Stanley Thompson, the famous Canadian architect, is building a course near Rochester called Midvale Golf and Country Club. So he gets in touch. And tells Stanley Thompson what he's done and what he's up to. And I think they play a round of golf together. That always helps. Jones knows what he's doing on a golf course. And Thompson says, well, why don't I bring you on and you can help me at Midvale? And as it turns out, he pretty much leaves Jones alone. Once he's confident Jones knows what he's doing, he comes back and visits once or twice. But Jones basically takes over the Midvale design and the construction of the golf course. And then he's off and running, so to speak, because it's 1930. It's 1931. 1930, 1931. That means the Great Depression. Jones and Thompson never actually get paid for their work at Midvale, and their other prospects dry up as well. And so Jones is now in a position where he's got to find work. You know, where do you find enough you know, people with money to build golf courses? And so he scuffles. I mean, he's, he's just living off of one meal a day from a diner with soup and a co- coffee for a long period of time. And this is the moment that the seed of the open doctor is planted. This moment when the golf course design business, as it existed in the 1920s, suddenly crumbles, and the usual routes to success in golf architecture are closed off. This is when Robert Trent Jones, as he's now started to call himself, needs to reinvent himself again. He's still working with Stanley Thompson, but they aren't finding many jobs. Gradually, that partnership fades away. In the mid to late 30s, Jones stays afloat by getting some commissions through the Works Progress Administration. Basically, government money keeps his career going. But the most important thing that he does during this period is behind the scenes. That's where he's developing new ideas for how to persuade people to hire him. And one of his key ideas is that America's best-known championship golf courses need to be modernized. All right, so he needs evidence for this argument, right? What he does is pretty ingenious. He starts going annually to the nation's biggest tournament, the U.S. Open, and he goes there to collect data. Jones gets the idea that, you know, let's let's systematically compile data on all the tee shots that are being hit by the field in the Open. So what he would do is he would hire, he would get a couple of young caddies and he would give them, a, I think, a penny a ball. That's the story I remember him telling. And they would find a hole that was flat, and so where the roll's true, it's not downhill, it's not uphill, it's not side hill, so forth. And there would be a chalk line at 200, a chalk line at 210, a chalk line at 220, a chalk line at 230. And Jones would be out there kind of with a clipboard, you know, 
roving up and down the side of the fairways and his caddies that he hired when the ball would hit one caddy would mark where the ball hit relative to the chalk lines the other would get the ball where it rolled out to and so that he would mark how much the carry was and how much the rollout was what jones finds is that the top players are hitting the ball much farther than they used to one reason for this is that the players are no longer using hickory shafted clubs as they did in the 20s. They're using steel shafted clubs. And with each passing year, they're figuring out how to swing them more efficiently and powerfully. Now, as driving distances are going up, scores at the U.S. Open are going down. And this catches the attention of Joseph Dye, the USGA's new executive director. Dye is a young man, about the same age as Jones, and the two of them find that they have many similar opinions. They had conversations about uh, how scores were going lower and lower, winning scores and average scores were going down. And they also agreed, Jones agreed with Thai, and this would be perfectly you know, understandable from the executive director of the USGA, that tournament, the Open, needed to be the sternest test in golf. And I think they, they both believed in, in the need to preserve the dignity of par. Both of them felt that the quality of play was outpacing the architecture and that the architecture needed to catch up. So by the end of the 1930s, Robert Trent Jones has begun to develop the relationships and arguments that would allow him to become the open doctor. And I don't mean to be too cynical about this, but it was a convenient position for Trent Jones to have that your course is too soft. You need me to come in and toughen it up. Absolutely. The man was a master marketeer. He was a hypester. I mean, he was sort of the P.T. Barnum uh, of golf course architecture because he could he could talk clients into just about anything. Season two of Fried Egg Stories is made possible by Precision Pro Golf. All right, I told you at the top of the episode about the sale going on right now and through June 19th at precisionprogolf.com. Lots of great deals there at the moment, but I want to zero in on one in particular, and that's $30 off the NX9 Slope Rangefinder. The NX9 Slope happens to be my rangefinder, and it's really fantastic. I especially love the pulse vibration feature. Basically, you get this little buzz when you lock onto the flagstick, and it gives you this serene sense of confidence that you're getting the right number. And that's what it's all about, confidence in the club you've chosen and the shot you're playing. Another benefit you get with a Precision Pro rangefinder like the NX9 Slope is industry-leading customer service. You'll talk to an actual person quickly and get any information or help you need. So if you're looking to step up your game or get an awesome gift, Check out the Father's Day sale through June 19th at PrecisionProGolf.com. Swing with confidence, hit more greens with Precision Pro Golf. That brings us to Oakland Hills Country Club, where Robert Trent Jones got his first full opportunity to pursue his ideas about championship golf architecture. Oakland Hills was just outside of Detroit, Michigan, and it was a well-respected club. Its first course, now known as the South Course, was designed by Donald Ross in 1918. For its first head pro, Oakland Hills hired Walter Hagen away from Rochester. And in 1924, 
the South course hosted a successful U.S. Open. Fast forward to 1937, and Oakland Hills is scheduled to host the U.S. Open again. But within the USGA, there are concerns, primarily because of what happened the year before. The 36 Open at Baltus Roll had caused uh, real consternation for Joe Dye and the USGA people. That's Dick Howding, longtime member of the Heritage Committee at Oakland Hills. They were used to the fact that 286 had been a good, firm score that nobody got past, and nobody got past it for 20 years. And then uh, Tony Monero uh, shows up, and he shoots a 282 and breaks that record, just smashes it to bits by four strokes, and they were shocked. So the USGA and Oakland Hills want the 1937 U.S. Open to be a tougher test. They call on the architect A.W. Tillinghast to give recommendations, but he says that not much needs to change. So they basically leave Donald Ross's South Course intact. And then, of course, Goodall showed up. That would be Ralph Goodall. You know, he shot these incredible rounds and uh, came in with a 281 and beat the record that had just been set the year before by Tony Monero by a stroke. And, And because of the sensitivity of that 36 Open, they were really upset. It's like, you know, this is not what Joe Dye wanted, and this is not what the people at Oakland Hills had wanted or expected. I, I think they had an exaggerated feeling about it. They, they tended to feel like uh, shamed by what had happened. The thing is that what they could not see at the time or understand was that Ralph Goodall was on like a three, three and a half year spin of being the greatest golfer in the world. And they should have gone, well, aha, this wasn't some bum shooting a record score in 30s. So this is the world's greatest golfer at the time. But somehow they, the people at the club and the USGA both had this disease, you know, this, um, this panic. And the panic about plummeting scores and defenseless courses lasts through the 40s, through World War II, and right up to 1949, when Oakland Hills is named the host of the 1951 U.S. Open. By now, Joe Dye has an ally at Oakland Hills, John Oswald, the chair of the Green Committee. Oswald is an auto executive, a, a prototypical Detroit strongman. And he's even more fanatical than Dye about toughening up championship golf courses. He was like, he was nuts as far as wanting to really. And he said to uh, Joe Dye, he said, you know, I think that anybody who hosts the U.S. Open is responsible to, to present a venue that is so tough that it's almost impossible for anyone to win it. Now, during the same post-war period, Robert Trent Jones has continued to rise. He's maneuvered his way into a, a working relationship with Robert Tyre Jones, better known as Bobby Jones, the winner of the 1930 Grand Slam and the founder of Augusta National Golf Club and the Masters Tournament, you know him. Alongside Bobby Jones, RTJ designs Peachtree Golf Club in 1947 and makes some major changes to Augusta National. So if he's not quite the most sought-after golf architect in the country at this point, he's close, especially after Donald Ross dies in 1948. And all the while, Jones has kept up his studies of driving distance. And he was beating that drum, telling everybody that your courses 
are no good. They're passe. They're not a test of great championship golf any longer. They were designed for sloppy golf with sloppy instruments and sloppy balls. And these guys are good golfers and their equipment has gotten better and better and better and more accurate. And they are able to take these courses that were designed for imprecision and do precise things on them. Why aren't we designing courses that, that test that? And I think the, he was speaking the language that both John Oswald at Oakland Hills and Joe Dye at the USGA liked. So Robert Trent Jones is hired to renovate Oakland Hills. And with Oswald and Dye supporting him, he's given free reign to pursue his modern ideas about championship golf course design. Having uh, Trent Jones and John Oswald from Oakland Hills work together is like, uh, I don't know, it's like two psychopaths feeding each other, you know, (laughs) bad chemicals. (laughs) Robert Trent Jones goes to work on Oakland Hills in 1950, the year before the South Course will host its third U.S. Open. And there are some things about the course that he leaves alone. Donald Ross's routing remains basically intact, and his remarkable undulating greens stay more or less the same. But it's Jones's work on the bunkers, especially the fairway bunkers, that has a huge effect. He tells the club that Ross's fairway bunkers have become obsolete, and he uses his U.S. Open distance studies as evidence. He claims that everybody in the 1951 field will be able to drive the ball at least 236 yards in the air, which will allow them to carry almost every fairway bunker at Oakland Hills. So he says, let's get rid of the old bunkers and build new ones. But in carrying out this plan, Jones doesn't just pick up Ross's bunkers and move them farther out. Instead, he fundamentally changes the way they're arranged. Okay, let me explain what I mean. The original Oakland Hills had wide fairways, and Ross's bunkers were scattered across the landscape in a seemingly random fashion. But the more you played the course, the more you realized that many of the bunkers guarded certain angles into the green, so that if you took the risk of playing close to a bunker, you gained an advantage. You found that you had access to a channel or a slope that fed your ball onto the green. The intention was to give players many options, while at the same time rewarding those who were strategic and precise. This philosophy of design was widely accepted in Ross's era, an era that we now call the golden age of golf architecture in America. But in 1950, here comes Robert Trent Jones with a very different theory of bunker placement and therefore of golf course design in general. And um, so Jones made sure that the, he did two things that were revolutionary. That's Bradley Klein, a historian of golf architecture. He pushed the bunkers back to the point where he thought the ball would either land or come to rest, and he moved them out from the middle of the fairway and diagonal and put them on the side so that you had to walk down the middle. In concentrating the bunkers around the sides of these measured-out, data-determined landing zones, Jones changes the very essence of Oakland Hills and signals a decisive break from the Golden Age. Well, when you take out those kind of interesting cross bunkers and you just put bunkers on the side, all you're trying to do is play golf to avoid the bunkers rather than challenge the bunkers. What the classic architects did 
because they put bunkers and said, if you carry this, there's a reward. There's fairway on the other side. You're going to gain yardage. There's a risk. Well, that risk-reward ratio was eliminated. And so the sort of tacking and the strategic chess and moving back and forth, left and right, got lost out there. So Oakland Hills got narrower, tighter, tougher, uh, with more punitive bunkering, the landing area, and then the defined way to play was down the middle. This is the crux of what Jones, along with Joe Dye and John Oswald, wanted from the championship game. Narrower fairways, heavier rough, and smaller landing zones defended by deeper bunkers, or basically what we now recognize as a modern championship golf course. Let me play dumb slash devil's advocate here. Sure. Some would say that these bunkers that pinch in on the fairway in the elite driver's landing zone are strategic because if you carry them, then you're closer to the green. If you choose to hit it a little bit less far, be slightly less aggressive, well, then you have to fit it between them. And if you choose to take the cautious route, then you have to lay short of them. And and the punishment is that you have a long approach to the green, which is often, again, surrounded by bunkers. That is a form of strategy, is it not? It's a form of strategy, yes, that pertains to people who know where the golf ball is going and who can change with the conditions. It's not one that is uh, relevant to the skill or limited skill set of the average or high handicap golfer. And so what happens is you design golf courses for, for elite play. That's what happens. What impact does that kind of bunkering scheme and that just general philosophy of golf course strategy have on the usual member player? What it does is it takes the golf course from being site-specific to the contour and land of the topography and turns it into a mechanical exercise done on a drawing board so that the golf courses all look the same. The other thing you do is you force players to hit aerial shots into greens So then what happens is you end up rewarding a certain level of elite championship play where they can play power aerial golf and the the kind of dink, dink, dink player becomes outmoded or uh, rendered uh, rare, if not irrelevant, because their skill set is much more diverse and oriented toward creating something. And you end up rewarding aerial power golf. I would start with Jones by saying that he was a an advocate of what we'd call strategic, you know, of the strategic school. Jim Hansen tends to be a bit more sympathetic to Jones's point of view. He wanted golfers to have to think their way around the golf course, and I think Jones did a pretty good job with that myself. And he has critics that don't don't agree with that. They think that Oakland Hills became kind of a. Uh, too much the same that every hole was kind of uh you know you had to walk down a straight line to get to the from t-, t to green and and the bunkering was all placed just you know tight tighten in the the landing area it, it, it was more varied it was more varied than that what strikes me as the point of confusion here is that a lot of architects before robert trent jones many of what we call now the golden age architects thought of strategy in terms of the width of the corridor yeah, and thought of strategy in terms of where you position your drive in that corridor. Now you could go ahead and hit an errant drive or an unstrategic drive, an ill thought through drive to an 
a disadvantageous position in the fairway and you're still in the fairway and you have a chance to recover and whatever. But once you get there and look at the shot that you have to hit, look at where the green is angled, look at the hazards you might have to overcome, you realize that you're dead. And so I think that that's how golden age architects thought about strategy. That's how they wrote about strategy. You have to have these wide corridors and people can miss and and still be in the fairway, but it's a delayed penalty. It's not an immediate penalty. And the idea of delayed penalty seems to be the one that is absent from Robert Trent Jones's discussion of his design. It seems that he was more interested in immediate penalties. If you hit a poor drive, you'll end up in a bunker. You'll end up in the rough around the bunker. And I think that that's where a lot of today's architects, the Hanses and the Dokes of the world say that this is not a properly strategic golf course that Robert Trent Jones produced at Oakland Hills because the concept of delayed penalty is not present at it. Yeah, I think those are those are really good points. I personally, myself, as a lifelong golfer, uh, more and more I've come to appreciate the, the wide fairways off the, off the tee. It's nice to be on a golf course where you can hit it a little bit sideways and still go find your ball and still go hit your ball, you know. And But I think Jones would say, when you're talking about championship play in particular, that you, you the golfers are so good that it's too late if, you, if you're challenging them after their tee shot. That you need to challenge the tee shots too, and why not? I mean, again, I'm trying to put myself into Jones's mentality. I think Jones just felt that if you don't challenge the pros, the very best players in the world, if you don't, if you just give them so much leeway on their on their tee shots, then you're losing an important opportunity in the game. You know, you know why 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 give that away? Why give that shot away? You know, make that one hard too. Make every you know a, a difficult par. Make everything that to get a par. It all has to be. Hard. And I could respond to that by saying, well, the delayed penalty does challenge the tee shot because of X, Y, and Z, and and Jim and I could keep going back and forth, but you get the point. This is a debate about golf course design that we're still having today. But moving past the question of whether we think Robert Trent Jones's work at Oakland Hills was good, it might be more interesting to ask, why did people think it was good back then? In 1950, what was happening in America after World War II that made this form of golf architecture more appealing than what had come before? Well, Jim Hansen has some thoughts about that, too. I mean, coming out of World War II and how America felt about itself, you know, Americans came out of it with the confidence, uh, not just on a national scale, but on a global scale, uh, that the American way of doing things was the best way of doing them. You know, my father, you know, was a soldier in the Second World War, and and uh, unfortunately he died as a very young man, and so I didn't get a chance to talk to him much. But uh, I, I do know that, that people coming back from the war, starting their families, starting, you know, their jobs, starting their professions, came back with this enthusiasm uh, and, and vitality and sense of purpose that, made them able to take on lots of things that that maybe during and then plus remember they had lived through the depression 
I mean, they had lived through really hard times, and they had survived, not only survived them, but now they were ready to really, the, wor the world was going to open their arms, in a sense, open the arms to them. And so I think you have the development of what I, in my book, I call the American technological paradigm. How would you define that? Well, I think it is the belief that uh, technology is good. Technology is progress. Uh, you you should leave it as unbridled as possible. We just built the atomic bomb and blew it up. I mean, nothing's nothing's impossible. And but the the way of getting there is through science and technology. And this technological paradigm, this optimism about the future, this attitude that we need to look forward, not backward, found its way into golf. To me, it's a no-brainer that golf is going to be influenced by all the factors that, that affect everything else about the American experience in the post-war period. Uh, I mean, it would be impossible to imagine golf retreating into come, some kind of minimalism, you know, in the immediate post-war period. Who's going to be enthused about American minimalism? You know, no, it's maximalism. It's American maximalism. And so we're going to do things big. You know, think about John, just big John's cars. He's talking I mean, about John Oswald, the chair of the Green Committee at Oakland Hills, who, again, worked in the auto industry. You know, the, the Vic, Crown Victoria, the, the, the Crestliner, you know, the T-Bird, the, the Thunderbird. I mean, cars are getting really big with big fins and big light. They're as long as, I mean, we, when I look at cars, classic cars from that era, I think, my God, how did they park those things? Uh, I, that my parents did. They had, they had those cars. So, I mean, it's very much what golf does in that era is very much in context to what's going on in America more generally. And, and plus in this era, maybe this is an overgeneralization, but you don't want to go back to roots. You don't want to go back to the past. No. The pa what was so good about the past, they, they, from their point of view? What was so good about that, you know? We can do so many things so much better now. You know, put all that together and, you know, it, it would be, be, it'd be astonishing if you didn't have a Oakland Hills come along in 51 with the redesign that it was. I mean, that, that's why history is so interesting. I mean, it's not like it's, it's it, I'm not saying it's inevitable because things are contingent. And you have to have the, the, what's fascinating about history is talking about the contingencies. And here the contingency is you've got Joe Dye and a friend, Robert Trent Jones, who meet up with a perfect person in Detroit, you know, in the motor industry, at the club, Oakland Hills, who's got a long history, going back to Ross. And you put those three together, that's the contingency, that these three guys end up together in a perfect place at a perfect time, perfect, you know, quote in quotes, to do this amazing transformation of a golf course that is, I think, it is probably the most transformational moment in the history of modern golf. How so? Well, in the sense of the kind of course that you get and the kind of reaction that it causes from the pros and the, and the legacy that it leaves. It's not just that this happens once. I mean, Jones becomes the open doctor, and Dye remains the executive director. So they take their Oakland Hills experience, and they just move it, you know, to the next course, and they move it to Baltusrol. They move it to Olympic. Baltusrol, 1954. Olympic Club, 1955. Oak Hill, 1956. Southern Hills, 1958. All open doctor style renovations. Narrow fairways, dense rough, steep bunkers, down the middle, golf.
And that was what prevailed in championship play, 50s, 60s, and 70s. and um, Arguably beyond. <laughs> well beyond, yeah. It became the template, not just for the USGA, but for other clubs. This was interesting. Trent became a household name, and it became the go-to guy for these second, third-tier clubs that wanted to, oh, we got to hire Trent Jones. To, you know, that's the way, that's the, the way to get away. Even beyond just hiring Trent Jones, I feel like, and I don't know if you agree, that this shaped the very idea of what a championship golf course was. Exactly. And it was a model that proved successful to the point where his competitors, Dick Wilson, George Cobb, uh, Joe Lee, all adopted that model moving forward. Now, their careers weren't as um, luminary. They didn't last as long, but they tried. And so Robert Trent Jones, as the Open Doctor, defined an entire era of American golf course design, not just at the championship level, but everywhere. For that to happen, though, just completing the work at Oakland Hills in 1950 wasn't enough. The course had to capture the broader public imagination somehow, and that's where the 1951 U.S. Open came in. That's next on Fried Egg Stories. Fried Egg Stories is produced by me, Garrett Morrison, with transcript and editing help from Meg Atkins. The guests in this episode were Robert Trent Jones Jr., Jim Hansen, Dick Howding, and Bradley Klein. Jim's biography of Robert Trent Jones is called A Difficult Par, and Bradley is the author of Discovering Donald Ross and Rough Meditations, among other books. We'll be back on Wednesday with part two of The Open Doctor and His Monster. So see you then, and thanks for listening.